0: If you have a seat, we get uh, over Bible. We've got Bibles in the back now, a couple housekeeping, I guess, things that you'll see, some, some s- small changes. All of our information now is back at the information table, and right now the Invisible Man is the one uh, hosting that information table. But at some point, someone will volunteer, and uh, we'll have some people back there to answer some basic questions about what's going on. And, and so there's some, anything to sign up for, things of that nature, we'll be back at that table in the other, uh, in the commentary area, they'll see a bunch of uh, books in the, um, like, I don't know what you call it, bookstore. Or we have kind of an honor bookstore, so basically we trust that you're not going to steal our books and not pay for it. But if you do, we figure, I guess, you need it worse than we do. So, hey, by God's grace, there you go. Um, but they're <clears throat> ten bucks a book, I believe, and there's little envelopes there that you just take a book, tell us what book you took so we know what to... Um, uh, reorder and then stick it in one of the urns so that it's basically self-funded and good to go. And then there's Bibles back there that don't cost $10. So these aren't like free there and 10 bucks here. They're all free, so just take the Bibles, but the books themselves are, are 10 bucks. So great stuff back there. All right, we're in James, and <clears throat> the, uh uh excited to, to almost be done with James. We have one chapter left, which means several sermons still, but we're almost done, and you can see that uh, we're not going to, like have a special Christmas uh, sermon on uh, the 27th, whatever it is. We are going to have the Christmas Eve service, which I hope you invite all kinds of people to, because it's one of those firsts. It's our first Christmas Eve service. Uh, We always have different firsts, you know, our first Good Friday, our first service, our first communion. This is our first Christmas Eve service, so we're excited about it. Um, it's at seven o'clock, obviously on the twenty-fourth, and we're hoping You invite friends and family and neighbors, whoever, to enjoy, obviously, some Christmas singing as families together. No childcare, or you can certainly take your your kids back there if you like and you know take care of them. But they are uh, invited to sing with us and read scripture, and and it's going to be an enjoyable time. So we hope that you'll join us then. But we'll continue straight through James, and and we will. Uh, Preach uh, a few more sermons and we'll be done, and it'll be fantastic. Today we're in James chapter four, and uh, verse thirteen to seventeen is what we're going to read. So if you turn there, and I'll read it to you. Um, I watched last night. uh, It's a wonderful life, and uh, I love that movie. I didn't plan it; just happened to be on TV. And um, I had the colorized version, which is just really irritating because everyone's pink and turquoise. But this was the black and white, and it's um, just an awesome story. You know it. Um, It honestly worked really well. Today we're talking a lot about planning and uh, planning with God or without God. And it's interesting. If you know the story of It's a Wonderful Life, it's very interesting. Uh, George Bailey had lots of different plans for his life, and none of them ever worked out the way that he foresaw or intended, but they certainly worked out the way uh, that God intended in the context of the story, clearly. Um, but it's a, it's just the kind of story that makes you just feel, feel good. Um, it makes you want to hug people and like, you know, listen to bells and think of angels and things like that. So it's, I really enjoy the film, but it made me think last night of what we're were preaching on today. And it was just uh, one of those God incidences, if you will. So James four, verse 13 to 17, try to make this as energetic as I can because first service is always like staring at me and then like. Next thing you know, we're praying and it's over, so, you know, you ever want an amen or something? Aaron Ortiz, I think, is in here, so if you throw, like, you just feel really good, throw out an amen, that's all right, um, in a timely way, it's not amen in the middle of a silence, because that would be weird. So, here we go, James 4, verse 13, uh, to make sure I read the scripture, and read it first every time, here we go. Come now, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, So James is a pastor, he's a pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, he's writing to churches, he's writing to Christians, he says brothers quite often, and so this is a a letter that's written for believers, and in particular, this passage, it seems that he is speaking directly to uh, wealthy Christians, or by wealthy I mean Christians who have businesses, they're they're owners of some kind of trade, or, or, or offer some kind of service. And these guys who he's writing to or speaking of, they have some sort of skill or service and they're they're thinking about, as normal businessmen seem to do, about what they're going to do to make money and they're making their plans uh, to travel to a certain city, nameless, it's kind of hypothetical obviously, to a certain city and sell whatever they have or offer whatever service that they have uh, and make money. And... They intend to profit as they're at this town. And, and James spends a few verses here criticizing their words. Now, James is very much about the tongue, very much about uh, identifying what comes out of the heart is what the mouth often speaks out. And so he's again speaking about words here, and he's not speaking against making a profit. This isn't like an anti-capitalism, you know, anti-making money, type of um, a passage. The passage is more about the heart. And the, the problem that all Christians have is they always spend time on behavior and not enough on the heart, which affects behavior. So James is talking about the heart here and how words and actions reveal the heart. And his criticism, criticism is directly um, attacking their the heart behind their business plans, not the business plans themselves. And namely that These guys are going about their business, literally and figuratively, but they're going about their business like any other normal tradesman, merchant, whatever, does. There's no difference between them and anyone in the world. And the reality is, the truth of the matter is, as a Christian, as a Christian husband, a Christian wife, a Christian mother, a Christian father, a Christian plumber, a Christian electrician, a Christian um, waitress, uh, a Christian computer person, whatever you happen to be, as a Christian, you live differently within that. It governs everything that you do within that, whether it be photography or mechanic, whatever. And they're doing no different and approaching their business with no different of an attitude than the world is. And we're not supposed to, or we don't, live our lives in segmented categories of work, play, church, and and whatever other categories there are. But it seems that we have this tendency to divide our lives into spiritual and non-spiritual areas. Where I, I have the spiritual areas where I invite God into, and He helps me to make decisions about certain things when I'm around certain types of people. That's when I'm being spiritual, and then when we're in a different context, which we would identify—not that God does—as this is my unspiritual time, it doesn't mean that we are absolutely evil, but it means that we aren't necessarily being governed by the fact that we have an identity. So we have an identity of being a child of God, because Christianity, the faith, and we've taught this whole this whole book study is about. Like, what really is faith? What does it look like to live out the things that we confess about Jesus on the cross? And living out faith has to be much more than a series of behaviors. We read James oftentimes and get there, like, yep, do that, do that, do that. But it's got to be more about an identity that governs whatever we do. And so I was thinking about this and going, all right, whether we, we, we go to play or go to work Or go to church. We should be people of integrity. And people of integrity means simply, I'm the same wherever I go. I don't change depending on the context. And I was thinking about my sons. And my my sons and my daughter as well, they are Ford kids. Right? They never cease to be Ford kids. They will always be Ford kids. And we kind of ingrain that in them. Teach that to them. That they are Ford kids. And Ford kids do things maybe differently than a lot of families do. And we do things differently because we're just weird. Um, I was talking last service about the idea that every family has its own language of how they describe certain things or not, the jokes they make or not, even the smells of homes. If you notice that, everyone has their own smell. It's not good or bad. It's just that, That's why everyone likes to have their own pillow. It's like, it's my smell. It's me, you know. And sometimes people's houses smell like potpourri, smells like dogs. Sometimes they smell like just people. So we all have our own uniqueness whatever it happens to be and there's a ford uniqueness that some people would aspire to and some people would avoid and every day every week every month my kids go into different contexts and makes all kinds of decisions and my hope although i'm disappointed sometimes my hope is that they're always making those decisions filtered through the fact governed by the Reality that they are a Ford kid, whether they are at their neighbor, my neighbor's house playing, whether they're at school, whether they're in front of strangers, whether at the church, they are Ford kids always and forever. And what that means to them, I know. Growing up, there were certain things for me that I was I'd always been a Ford kid. But the idea of being a Ford kid was there were certain things like when I would go to. Um, a, stranger, not a stranger's house, that'd be weird, but if I go to a, a friend's house or a family member or whatever and go eat dinner, there were certain things and I don't remember if my parents like, laid out a list, like this is what we do, but it feels like they taught us certain things. Like when I was offered something, I took it. Like at the table, they put something on my plate, I cleaned the plate. I ate everything, even if I hated it. So there were times when I would eat stuff, at a frizzy, even in high school it would affect me, where I would eat stuff that I loathed. Just to be polite. People go, that's just weird. That's how I was raised. It was polite, it was respectless that's what I did. So the one thing I hate, I'll oh, eat just about anything, and I hate cooked carrots. It's the only thing I don't like. Like carrots, i we'll eat carrots till you know, whenever, but I don't like cooked carrots, they suddenly become something just grotesque. So but if I got a pile of cooked carrots given to me at my friend's house, I love carrots. And I would eat them. And I would be just wanting to throw up, but I would eat the throw up too. Whatever. I would just eat it. Because that was what Ford kid. Now, that's a very simplistic thing. But when we talk about faith, talk about even my kids and their behavior, they are to do certain things, not be selfish, to be service oriented. All these things. Why? Because you're a Ford kid. But Johnny, Ford kids don't do that. Ford kids do different things. And so, for the most part, they do well, my two sons and my daughter. For the most part, they do well. There's always some mistakes. But I think their, their drive to live out what it means to be a Ford kid is, is twofold. One is they want to please mom and dad. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's a good thing to want to please God the Father. The other is that they are looking for and want to believe that their decisions, whatever they might be, are going to be the most fulfilling things that choosing to be a four-kid is, in fact, a more fulfilling thing than choosing not to do whatever it is that they have been instructed or kind of taught to do over the course of my parenting with them. And sometimes they, they make the wrong decisions. Sometimes they dishonor my authority and the authority of my, my bride and our family name, if you will, not in terrible ways, but, you know, they do dishonor and they bring pain to their rear ends in the process of doing that. And, hey, you know, that's how they learn what a Ford kid is. Ford kids don't do that, and here's what Ford kids receive when they do. So that's a reality of being raised as a Ford kid. But they believe in those moments when they they think about this, when they decide to do it a different way, that they know better, that mom and dad are holding out on us, that they haven't told us the truth, that there's a better way to succeed than how I've been raised, That sounds a lot like Adam and Eve. Where God's word, the Father had given a word, and they thought, well, maybe we should do it this way. And so there's sin always at work here, but we are to be governed by this identity that we are children of God always. Always. And so as he addresses or appears to address these businessmen, he's really addressing anyone that confesses Jesus and anyone that has plans, not just business plans. And his concern, I think, is that... When we live in such a way as to build our own kingdom, that's our primary objective, that we, in fact, dismiss God's. And when we seek our own will and desires for things, we may, in the process, and do ignore God's will for things. And when our greatest pursuit is our glory and our own beauty and our own success, when that's our greatest pursuit, it makes it almost impossible for God to be, and for His beauty to be, and for His glory. These are mutually exclusive things. And when you are at the center of everything, it's incredibly hard to submit to God to do much of anything, especially when His plans don't match yours. And so he is speaking to planning specifically without God, planning futures without God. Not that you want to profit in the sense that these businessmen want to succeed and and make sure, but perhaps in the approach and the heart attitude behind that, they aren't including God in that plan. And so he attacks, I think, specifically the overconfidence that men have, that we have in our own power, in our own wisdom, the things he's talked about, and even in our own wealth. And we make plans without relying on God's wisdom. And we actually believe, although, and I've been struggling with this all week, even as we talk about building for me personally, it's like, okay, building the church, how much is that, am I really responsible for that, and how much am I, I have not any control whatsoever? And what plans can I make that I'm actually able to achieve? Because it seems like we assume that we can do a lot apart from God's favor. And I believe, and I'm beginning to believe more and more, that the only reason I'm a decent dad is because of the grace of God. A decent husband is because of the grace of God. And that I'm not really able to achieve much of anything by myself. But we make incredible presumptions, and he james the taxis, that first, that we actually simply, I think, presume that we will live as long as we please. That we will live as many days as we decide, I'm going to die now. Like, that we have some level of control of, I'll probably be 70, 80, whatever, not knowing that we might die during the service. I don't say it's a scare like, get right with God, because you can die any moment. Okay? But there's a reality, too. We just don't know. We just don't know. But we presume that we also can make any plans that we please. Because we can make plans, we can have those plans. And who cares if it jives with God? That we have the choice to even go on to those plans today or tomorrow, or that we can actually accomplish any of the plans we conceive. And I know that as a kid, you're like taught, you can do anything you want, and, you know, and all these things. And my mom did that, too, and encouraged me. But maybe we should have encouraged our kids differently. Not that, well, you can do any plans as long as God says you can. That sounds just kind of dark, and I understand that. But, there's got to be a way to teach our children and our friends of involving God in that plan. Because Jesus taught us to. But we just kind of think, well, if I can make the plans, they must be good, and I can probably achieve them. And that all of our plans should, in fact, profit us. Now, I think we forget in the presumptions we make that we are very frail, very ignorant. James has been talking about that. That we're easily tempted. That our wisdom is oftentimes very devilish and demonic because we're not depending upon God. We forget our sin. We forget our weakness. We forget our dependence and need for God's favor in all things. And James, I think, if we, if you want to turn, I'll show you just a couple parables, but one right now. If you turn to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third gospel, the recording of uh, uh, the story of Jesus from, in this case, it's really birth to death. Mark doesn't start uh, with his birth. Luke is a doctor. He wanted to get all the details, so he starts pretty early. And Luke chapter 12, verse 16, James doesn't um, spend a lot of time speaking about Jesus. He mentions him a couple times, but the the things he comes out with are always echoed in Jesus' teaching. I think this is where... Namely, he's getting this passage uh, in his letter is from this parable Jesus taught. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 16, he told him this. This is a sobering parable if you really think about it. Jesus sitting down like, let me tell you something, Sam. Let me think about this. Let me tell you something, whoever. And he tells this story. He says, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops so much. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, because this is getting spiritual now. I think it's kind of funny. I'll say to my soul, soul? I don't know how many often you've spoken to your soul, but we're talking deeper. It's not just this financial idea. It's a deep-rooted Satisfaction, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry, retire, enjoy. But God said to him, God shows up. Fool! Fool! exclamation points. I'm like fool. Fool! Why? If you look at the book of Proverbs, there's two things to be: either wise or foolish. The wise follows God's way; the foolish follow their own. Say, fool! This night your soul is required of you. You're dead tonight. You got all this stuff, and the things you have prepared—whose are they going to be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, as if those things are mutually exclusive. You cannot live or have treasures for yourself and build up treasures for God. Certainly can build up treasures. Certainly you can profit. Certainly you can make money. Certainly you can have success, but you can't have success for yourself and have success for God. Those are not those are mutually exclusive things. But we are people Which I think James talks about, because we don't know about tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know uh, if you guys walk out of here, if you might slip on the icy little sidewalk right there, smash your head, and you're dead. You don't know. There's a pastor in a church I read about who was doing a baptismal and he got electrocuted from the microphone. I didn't see that one coming. You don't know if you drive out, if you have a heart attack. Don't know. But we're so obsessed with tomorrow. We're always thinking about the future and tomorrow. And I think this obsession, we, we justify it very well because we package it in, in terms like stewardship and fiscal responsibility or even health. And I don't think those are wrong, but I, at times that obsession can become idolatry. We're always thinking about the future and our own personal success. And we put our identity... Our hope, our security, our peace, and the right career choice, and the stuff that we have, and taking the right vitamins, and getting the right amount of exercise—that can certainly become idolatrous. It's funny. Uh, I, I'm a big Biggest Loser fan. Okay, confession. I've already talked about this. Great show. Cry almost every time I watch it. Call me a pansy. I don't know why tears start coming. I'm like, what is this watery discharge? So the reality is, though. Those guys start working out six to eight hours a day. And it seems like a lot of them are in danger of replacing one idolatrous addiction for another. Where not only, instead of eating eight hours a day, I'm going to work out eight hours a day. And not really getting full satisfaction and contentment. But all, hey, it's the name of health. It's about tomorrow. It's about having more time with my kids. It's about having more time to do what I want to do my dreams we put our faith in those kind of things. Choosing the right stocks. Making the right decisions. Especially doing things for the environment to make sure our future is secure for our kids. That's a huge idol. Look at all the climate change stuff. And that doesn't mean we don't recycle. Oh, forget it. God's in control. I don't want that attitude either. But it becomes idolatrous when we obsess about it. Proverbs 27.1 says this, Do not boast about tomorrow you do not know what a day may bring. You don't know about tomorrow. All we have is today. And there's nothing wrong, don't get me, I don't want to mistake it, with inherently planning. I think wise planning is appropriate and required. Wisdom, uh, the Proverbs kind of talk about this, this balance between trusting God and yet making plans. But there's that trusting God piece I think we have a problem with, where we confess that we are frail and rebellious oftentimes and ignorant and we are very much dependent upon Him, even for our next breath. Now, I don't think the alternative is like planning with God is like, well, I'm just going to pray and pray and pray until I hear God's voice. I'm not going to do anything. Because I've seen people do that. They're like so waiting for what's the right thing. I don't want to plan my tomorrow. And they just wait and wait and wait. Or that they have to have a verse for every single decision that they make. I don't think that's what God would like us to to do. I don't think it's that we never pursue our dreams very much. I think we should pursue our dreams but under submission to God and dependence upon Him. It's not that a prideful person says you know, well I'm just going to do this or that for tomorrow and, and that the submissive, humble person says well I'm not going to do this or that. But it is I think to approach life where you are governed and seeking to find the will of God. Do we even care, I guess is a good question, what God wants with blank? Do I even care what God wants with me as a parent, with me as a husband? Do I even care what God wants for the education of my children, for my finances, for my job? Not what job, but where you're at now. And you've probably heard that phrase, um, God's will. It's used a lot. God's will for this, God's will for that. How do I figure out God's will Like it's this mysterious, incredible thing that I have to discover, and I was reading a great book, and the author of the book described God's will as this feeling, oftentimes, or I should say, the misview of it, that God's will is like this this plan that He has for us, where all our decisions are made, and you know, and we're supposed to be doing these things, and we are accountable to know what those decisions are. So every little decision, like "Oh, I don't know," is this God's will? Is that God's will? And we are accountable to do it right, but He won't tell us what it is. And we're like always going, "Gosh, I don't know." It's like this mystery. It's like, "Oh, let's see if He figures it out," you know. And we're going along life, confused and frustrated and worried. But before we spend time on what looking for God's will is, I think we should maybe discuss what James says is our tendency, which is asking ourselves, does it profit us? So I think that we actually make most of our decisions or, or spend time meditating on what we should do based off of whether or not we will profit from it. Maybe not financially, but that's certainly one. But here's a question, I think it was in the study guide, that I thought was very poignant. When was the last time, to be honest, and don't nudge your husband or wife if, you know, you just made a major decision and you didn't do this. But when was the last time you planned or dedicated your plans to the Lord before you actually did them? When was the last time you actually, whatever, maybe it was a purchase. Maybe it was a career choice. When was the last time you actually talked to God, read His Word, Sought godly counsel before you actually did the plan versus afterward. Oh, that was your will, God. How much of your faith and your marriage and your parenting and your careers and your finances or other aspects of your life are actually planned regularly with God? And I think that's a hard question even for me to answer as I begin to think of all the decisions that I make on a daily basis of how I'm actually praying about them. Talking to God and seeking Scripture, I kind of wish sometimes there was just a book in the Bible called Sam's Life, Chapter One. Excellent. Do this, okay? But he tells us a lot. He tells us a lot. And the funny thing is, many of us pretend—I, I know I do this or have done this—to be seeking God's will, and we use phrases. And this is—I <clears throat> was again reading about this, and I thought it was very well stated. We use phrases like "open doors." right, to describe that we have found God's will. And I've used that phrase, like, you know, that God's not opening the door here, or God has opened the door for this. And we kind of talk about these these doors that God opens. And there's a book back here in this this bookstore called Do Something. You should read it. It's really small. Probably I'll be gone after today. But it's it's about God's will. And here's how he described this open door thing, which I think was perfect, and I didn't want to... Screwed up, so I just said it his way. and said, when we speak of open doors, we being Christians, we are merely or often referring to opportunities God has given us to do the good things we already wanted to do. Catch that? The open doors are often referring to opportunities God has given us to do the good things we already wanted to do. In other words, we determine the will of God for our life, what plans to make, what decisions to make, or choices to make on whether we actually want to do them, whether they jive with our desires, whether I think they bring us comfort or discomfort, whether they require more work or less, whether they bring us pleasure or pain. That's kind of how we decide. And when something brings us comfort or it's easier to do, this is the norm, I think, or it brings us pleasure, we say, the Lord is opening a door here. Right? Think about that. How often do we look for doors? Like if there's a door open. That's man, that'd be really if God's open a door, it's really easy. How often do we look for a door that's going to require us to do something or sacrifice? We see an open door, do we ever go, hmm? I know this is really easy to do, but there's gotta be one around here that is, you know, gonna require more of me. Or we see one like, you know what? Hey, beautiful door open here person really needs some help. I could help them. I have the means to help them. But there's a door somewhere else that I probably should be looking for, just to be sure I'm not missing a door somewhere. Because this door over here with my 45-inch TV looks really wide open. Like, look, it went on sale. That's an open door, right? Or I just got blessed with a bunch of money, and like, clearly, God wants me to buy this car, because that's an open door. Really. Really. I wonder how many times open doors and finding God's will like this must be is just our way of doing things or finding the easier path for us or for ourselves. I think open door theology can be very dangerous in some respects because it might enable us to be very lazy. It might enable us to be um, lack diligence and hard work. It might enable us to actually not sacrifice at all. Because sacrifice is going to cost us something. But we're always waiting, it seems, for tomorrow. And if God opens a door, hey, God opens doors. Don't get me wrong. I think there's open doors all the time, right? God opens a door or closes one, he opens a window. I know all that Christian jive talk, right? That's wonderful. And when God opens a door and makes it clear and we walk through it, hey, walk through it, I think it's a blessing of God. But we shouldn't assume, I think this is the danger, we shouldn't assume that the ease or difficulty of a situation or even the comfort or discomfort of a situation is God's way of telling us to do something or not. Because without question, that will kind of ignore the whole trials thing James talked about, which may in fact be God's will for you to walk through. And we go, well, that's not an open door. Clearly, it's too difficult to go through that. Really? Maybe that's the open door, the one with flames in it, you know, with like daggers and like, ah. Oh. Maybe that's God's will for you to go through. Well, he wouldn't want me to sacrifice something because it's going to cost me something. Are you listening to what you're saying? So, James challenges us in, in the next verse here. He says, I think he challenges that obsession we have with the future and for tomorrow. And by just going, what is your life? What is it? You have some poignant questions like, who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't be blaming God for your temptations. What is your life? Very poignant. And his answer is, your life is nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing more than a mist. Not even like a good rain that's going to leave some puddles. It's a mist that comes up in the morning and the sun comes up and it's gone. Before noon. Like that. We are not guaranteed. We are not guaranteed a tomorrow. And yet we spend Every moment of our lives, myself included, seeking after things, doesn't have to be material things necessarily, but seeking after things that have nothing to do with God to make our tomorrow secure and happy and comfortable. So focused on that. And in the midst of the pursuit of what we want for tomorrow, it's so easy for us, and I wonder if we forget the moment that God has us in right. Now. Because the mist that, that our lives are, it doesn't come from nowhere. The mist that we have, the time that we have, all that we have is a moment. It's a moment we're not entitled to. We're given moments because every breath we have is a gift of God. I don't think we actually walk through life that way. We actually have a sense of entitlement. Like we're guaranteed something. I get my plans for sake of being human and created by you for your glory. Wait a second. That doesn't make sense. We're not entitled to anything. Therefore, every breath we have is breathed out by God for his purposes. If all things, all of creation is intended to glorify him, that means every minute we have, more or less, is intended for God's glory. And when we take the attitude that our time is guaranteed and that our purposes are what is most important, then our faith becomes the words, just words, meaningless. And we stop asking questions like, you know, we, oh, how, can I, how can I secure a future for my children? And we stop asking questions like, how can I just love my kids and show them God today? Today. How can I glorify God here, in this moment, where I'm at, now, in the car, at work, How can I glorify God now versus I can't wait when I can glorify God on that mission trip five weeks from now. That's where I'm really going to be giving God honor. What about now? Or how can I love the people I'm with, my bride, my husband, my family, who who doesn't love me right now. How can I love them right now versus, well, I know when I'm able to do this, I'll be able to love them. How can I serve and meet a need now? amazing how many needs come across our faces that we just kind of like someone will take care of that i'm sure what are we doing now and not tomorrow actually one other parable in matthew chapter 6 which i think is uh, a phenomenal one that we have probably heard many times and maybe have not dwelled on it in this this way but again it's jesus giving a very poignant story he's a storyteller matthew chapter 6 verse 25 just a couple of verses and he tells a story about worrying about tomorrow. And I think it's probably where James, again, is getting the sense of uh, seeking after God's will. It says, therefore, verse 25, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or worry about your life, what you shall eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? That ever lived with the greatest kingdom. Even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the fuel which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, this is an issue of faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, and he's speaking to Jews, there will be anyone that is considered in the world, if you will, who's not of faith. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." So the implication is, you have one of two choices. You either seek for the kingdom of God, seek for God's glory, for God's righteousness, for God's way. You either run after that very hard, or you run after your own life. And if you seek for God's kingdom, the thing about this passage is that we always have approached this passage, or many people approach this this passage with provision and protection, and I think you do get that. He says, you seek the kingdom, and you'll have everything you need. You'll be protected and provided for. It's a very comforting verse for those who are having difficulty making provision in their life right now. Because he says, I know what you need. Trust me. But then he also says, I'm also going to give you what you want. And he talks about the lilies of the field. That's beauty. And joy like a bird, right? These other aspects that so we just think, like, God's going to give me the bare minimum exactly what I need. I haven't experienced that, and I haven't seen others experience I've seen more given. That He gives not only what we need when we seek His kingdom, but also what we want. Again, according to His favor, and this isn't prosperity preaching, but there is a beauty aspect that it's not just the basics. And James contrasts, I think, boasting with our tongue, with humbly saying as he goes on here, is what should we say? We should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We will trust God. It's not a matter of magic words because we do that. Oftentimes we pray like, "Oh Lord, Thy will be done." But I really like this, and I think sometimes we're just overconfident in our ability to maybe know what His will is, or really just praying that our will be done as we pray His will be done. Maybe just thinking that, because I tell you. Sometimes we say that with our words. We're like, oh, your will be done. In our hearts, we are hoping that it's our plans and not his that will be laid out. And I think what results then is is a disappointment when the plans don't match up. When we think we're outside of God's will. When in fact, maybe we should be praying that, We pray our desires, we pray His will be done, trusting that He might actually change our desires to align with Him. But I think this sense of God's will, this this piece of God's will, is not as difficult to figure out as people think. I'm not convinced He's worried about every little decision we make. Um, Whether you are old, young, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, employed, unemployed, man, woman, Mother, not mother. Father, not mother. Whatever. It seems like God's will is pretty plain. And that the, the will, the heart of God's will, has less to do with everyday little decisions and everything to do with one real truth, which is God desires to grow us and to shape us more into the image of the Son. Period. Now, 1 Thessalonians is a very interesting verse. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 Verse 2 and 3, and more comes in there. But it says this very plainly, Paul speaking, For this is the will of God. Fantastic. Your sanctification. Well, what about like what college I should go to? Well, that's just as important as it is to your sanctification. Sanctification is this process. Justification these big words we use, right? God justifies us or satisfies His justice and makes us right in standing before Him by the cross of Jesus Christ. And then He gives us the Holy Spirit that comes into our hearts, and we begin to be shaped more and more to the image of His Son as we submit to His Lordship. And it's a struggle, because we still sin. But as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we are broken by the Holy Spirit, and we are rebuilt by the Holy Spirit, we begin to be sanctified, and we look more like Jesus every day, never perfect, still stumbling around, but better until the day we die and we are made perfect. But that's His will for us. What's God's will? Your sanctification, to look more like a son. Which might include going through doors that aren't part of your plan. It might include living in the moment and discerning the moment, what is more like Jesus. Because more like Jesus, honestly, is a life that is a lot more discomfort and sacrifice and service and humility then we can probably and will be able to muster on our own. But I'm convinced that it's actually 100% more joyful than we could ever imagine. But that's not our assumption. We assume that it's got to profit us. And profit, in our mind, is comfort, is flat-out superficial joy, is pleasure, is ease. That door over there looks really difficult. It couldn't possibly be good for me. By God's grace, you know what he does sometimes? Shoves you through the door and then slams it shut. You're like, so, no, uh, not what I wanted. But by God's grace, he does that because that's his will. And his will is going to happen, whether we make the plan for it to happen or not. Now, James closes, uh, well, before I get there, here's what I think we need to do. And as we humbly do this, and it's humbling, because I like to have my own plans. I'll tell you right now, my plans didn't include this. I had lots of other plans. Plans for vacations. Plans for summers off as a teacher. Fantastic. That job became the best job of the world about June 16th. We would sit in the library the last meeting of the year and go, best job in the world starting now. Summers off. Christmas break, always off. I mean, I had weeks off. In fact, I actually put a time frame, uh, like I measured, like I was going to be a fireman. I was like, okay, eight days a month. How many hours is that? And then I calculated how many hours were for a teacher, and I was like, teachers got less, actually. More joyful, right? More pleasurable. That's how I measured it. Sick, I know. Okay? And then God said, do this now. Well, that's not really part of my plan. And I prayed against it. I went to the interview. Uh, for the church planning, and I tried to talk them out. Of, I gave them all the reasons why I shouldn't do this. And it wasn't part of my plan. It wasn't part of my plan to to a lot of things that have happened in my life. A lot of the trials, we don't plan for trials. If I could avoid them, I would, and we try, but they seem to always kind of creep up. I think the beginning part is to start submitting our plans and our lives to the will of God and commit our works to Him. How do you do that? Well, first of all, you read the Bible. Because he said a lot about making plans. Should I marry this person? Well, they're not a Christian, and they don't respect you. And well, well, that was answered pretty easily. Should I lie here? What should I do with my money? It's funny. People are like, what should I do with my money? The Bible tells you what you should do with it. Read the Bible. Pretty easy. Then we sometimes get decisions where like, There's no verse for this one. What do I do? Well, because I believe in a living God, and I believe the Holy Spirit resides in me, I ask God, what should I do? And sometimes he's silent, which tells me I can make whatever decision I want in that case. And because I prayed for wisdom, it's going to work. Sometimes I'll ask counsel of people, godly counsel. I don't call up my pagan pal and go, hey, man. What should I do here? Well, I don't know. I mean, they're not coming from the same perspective. But that is seeking the will of God and finding it and and spending time before you make a decision to find a decision that's honoring to God. And I think there are lots of options in one decision to honor God. But as we do, I think we have to trust that he will either give us the desire of our hearts or he will change the desire of our hearts. I believe that wholeheartedly. And we trust that even if our plans don't come to fruition as we hoped that they would, God's will is still at work. God doesn't leave anything to chance. It's not like, oh, shoot! God has everything in control. God knows exactly what's going to happen and decrees it as so. He does not take risks in the sense that we would think. And if we genuinely dedicate our plans to the Lord believing that whatever we have, good or bad, is given by God's grace, then we, we begin, hopefully, to accept that God's will might be, I mean, plays itself out different than ours did or was. And in the end, oh, even though we don't, I think, understand everything that God is doing, we believe that God is much bigger than our plans and better than our plans. As difficult as that is. And even if his way is disruptive to our plans and confusing and harder and maybe more painful than our pleasure plan, we rejoice because we know that he is God and that he knows what he's doing. That's a great question. Do you believe that there's a God? Yes, I do. Do you believe he knows what he's doing? Most of the time. Except when it doesn't coincide with what I wanted. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said it this way. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God. What's the will of God? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances? Yes. Because if he actually is purposing all things for good... That includes all things good and evil from our perspective. So here's how he closes. Somewhat of a little proverb, because he's so focused on doing. He's not a talker. He says this last verse, verse 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. And again, I said that when we speak of Proverbs... We speak of the fool and the wisdom. Here's the distinguishing characteristic. The wise guy, the guy full of wisdom, does things God's way. The fool does it his own way. It's never a matter of that's a better idea or a worse idea. It's a matter of that is honoring and righteous, and the other is sinful and wrong. To be a fool is to go I'm going to I know that I can have my own plans apart from God and do whatever I want and achieve it and I don't need him. That's foolish and sinful. What's wise is to trust God. Yes, make your plans, but to commit those plans to God and if he wills it, they are fulfilled. When we talk about the wisdom of God, what we're talking about is a completely an identity Like the Ford kids, right? I'm a Christian. And I do certain things, lots of things, all things differently. I am governed by the identity that I am a child of God, a citizen of His kingdom, under His Lordship. It's a God-centered approach to all things. That's where we start. And I'm not convinced we start there very often. But it can be scary. And James is very concerned here with making sure you live out your faith practically. You do something. But it can be scary when we live out our faith because walking by faith and not by sight means that you may make some decisions and have to follow some things that don't fit into the perfect plan you had. It'll actually require you to make sacrifices because that's what God called you to do. you ever had those experiences where you know God has put something before you to do and you're like... Just don't want to. I know he wants me to, but I don't want to make that sacrifice right now. That's what walking by faith is. And so in order to avoid having to walk by faith, I think we often bargain with God and we start talking about when we're going to start living for him. After some of us who have claimed him for days or months or even years, maybe even Christians for a long time. And you make these bargains with God. Okay, I will serve you, God, when it's easy. I will serve you, God, when it's convenient. I will serve you, God, when it's comfortable. That's just not faith. It's not. James is very specific. He says, if you know what is right, if you know living in this way, committing your plans to God is the right thing to do, if you choose, it's not just, well, that's probably not the best decision. It's sin. It's sin. To wait until it's convenient and easy and comfortable to start serving God is simple and stupid because you might die when you leave, and then you'll be standing before God and what will you say? You'd be the kind of person that yeah gets into heaven with the doors nipping you in the butt because you lived for him, kind of. Sin is not only doing what God has forbidden, but it's also when we fall short of what he's actually called us to do, this is what James is talking about, those sins that we call omission. Well, I didn't hate my brother, but you didn't love him. I didn't do all these bad things, but you didn't do these good things that he was calling you to do and putting before you. You made your own plans and built your own kingdom. And many of you probably think that I'll sacrifice for God when I have something extra to sacrifice. That's not faith. I just, we don't get that. That's why it's called sacrifice. If you have extra, it's not a sacrifice. I'll love my neighbor tomorrow when I've got a little more time and energy, and I know him a little bit better. I mean, I, I see that uh, they're struggling and probably need some help. My other neighbors will help them. That's not faith. Faith is not trusting God if tomorrow works out the way you plan. Faith is trusting God with your tomorrow and then making your plans about serving Him today, regardless of how tomorrow works out. It's today. And I ask you the question again for all of us. When was the last time you planned and dedicated your plans to the Lord before executing them, before doing them? How much of your faith and marriage and service in the body, and parenting, and career, and finances, or other aspects of your life, have you planned with God? might want to have that conversation with Him. Because I think many of us will look at our plans and the way our life is laid out, and we'll go, you know what, things are working out pretty good right now. And you start measuring your rightness by whether or not you are getting profit from it. I'm enjoying it, I'm comfortable, I'm at peace. Well, consider this. I think the Bible teaches that you could be profiting, you could be enjoying your life, you could be at peace, and yet you can actually be dishonoring God with your life. And as you take communion today, here's what I want you to consider, because we go through the routine all the time of taking communion. And I would just like us to really think about it for a little bit differently today. There are times when I don't feel it right to take communion for myself. I don't want you watching me. Okay. But this is between you and God. And think about this as you as you consider. When you take communion, you declare God, Jesus Christ, as a victorious king. And you also declare that there is a kingdom of which you are right now a citizen of. Do not, do not, do not dishonor the king, your king, by taking communion as you build your own kingdom apart from him. That's not good for you or good for anyone. Commit to him today, today, regardless of the past, today, commit to him wholeheartedly, honor him completely, love radically. For one day, perhaps soon for some of us, you're going to sit before Him confessing your love like an adulterer, thinking He doesn't know about you sleeping around, or someone who's so singly focused in love and dedicated to the King. And He'll know. He'll know. And yes, you'll be justified by the grace that is given in Jesus Christ alone. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, after you say, the only reason I can be here is because of Jesus' work, then if he says, look at all that stuff I gave you? you. made some great plans, man, but really weren't the ones I wanted for you. Commit your plans to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory as creator of all. We are but creations who are not wise, and we confess that we need your wisdom. We do pray, Father, for your will to be done in our lives, knowing that that might mean changing our desires. Father, I pray the Holy Spirit will motivate us to commit all of our ways to you. All of our relationships, all of our parenting, all of our finances, all of our job choices, everything that we have this very moment, Father, I pray that You will help us to commit it to You. Father, I pray that You will help us to see open doors and not to avoid those that are open simply because, Father, they're difficult. Help us to commit to knowing that Your will is for us to look like Your Son. Period. And all of the decisions we make and all the plans we make, Father, are to glorify You and make us look more like Jesus. And I pray as we... Confess that, that we will, as a body, take communion together as citizens of a different kingdom, living differently, working differently, playing differently, all to your glory. Amen.